Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. The legal side of startups investing is important, but most people start out knowing very little about it. Seed Legals works on more early stage funding rounds than anyone else. And in this episode, its CEO, Anthony Rose, gives a great perspective on how everything should work. We talk about what the real aims of the legal process is, how it can solve people's problems, and how they balance standardization versus the company's specific needs. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at hardenandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today on the podcast, we're joined by Anthony Rose, who is founder and CEO at Seed Legals. Welcome to the podcast, Anthony. Hello, thank you. So as usual, we want to learn a little bit more about you. So can you tell us how you became involved in the startup world? That's a great question. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a product uh, tech guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, years ago, I used to be with Kazan, the music file sharing company. Then I was hired by the BBC and headed up BBC iPlayer. And after I was at the BBC for a few years and launched iPlayer, I decided it was time to get back into startup land. I built a startup, sold it, built another startup, sold it, invested in a couple got tired of paying lawyers um, mm-hmm. and for all the legals for fundraising and then met my now business partner, Laurent Lafie, uh, at uh, Action Investors Party. And uh, he was saying, you know, those lawyers, they charge a fortune, they take forever, they make mistakes, we should change it. So we said, oh, we'll get together afterwards. And actually we did and uh, created Seed Legals. That was, uh, I mean, the, the party was like four and a bit years ago. And now Seed Legals is uh, actually about 100 people and about one in six of all early stage UK funding rounds is now done on Seed Legals. So there's definitely a problem to be solved in that space. Oh, that, yeah, it sounds like you've definitely found a market niche there. And it's interesting what you say about lawyers, because I was thinking before the conversation how people have a kind of mixed feeling about lawyers in terms of we all know we need them. But very few people seem to like them very much. So, so it's interesting you found a way of sort of threading that. So perhaps c- can you tell us a bit more about what Seagull Legals is and what it does and what makes it different? Sure. So Seed Legals, an always-on platform that's a platform and people. So it's a full-service deal. We want to be the operating system of your company. If you're looking to raise investment, if you're looking to hire your team, give them share options, manage your cap table, this platform does everything. So let's say you wanted to raise money for your business. Instead of going to a lawyer to build the term sheet, shareholders agreement articles, you can go on Seed Legals and uh, our platform will do that all for you. Our team's there to help. But importantly, we look to think, what would a lawyer do? And then we do completely the opposite. So we use data to show you what deal terms might be most appropriate for you. Normally, if you go to a lawyer, your lawyer will swing all the deal terms insanely in your favor and then send it over to the other party's lawyer, who will then, for hundreds of pounds an hour, send it, it insanely in their favor, and you'll go backwards and forwards, and statistically, you'll end up in a given standard market position. And really what's fascinating is, of course, Law and legal spans a huge area from, you know, criminal litigation, defamation and so on. But when it comes to company and fundraising and hiring people in general, and I think this is really interesting, which is there are 
a group of consenting parties who wish to agree on some things. And what they want to agree on is generally in plain English, you know, hey, I'd like to invest in your company. I'll give you a hundred thousand pounds for 5% equity in the business. Please sort out the details. And what you really want is you really want an interface that lets you express that in, in that form, lets you have data to show you what other companies might be doing in this space. And then you want something to take care of building the legals in milliseconds and as you change your mind the platform updates so the other thing is if you need help instead of booking a call with somebody next wednesday you can hit the web chat and somebody will talk to you in a currently a median and within five minutes to answer questions so uh, and their videos and, and so on so the idea is what's quite fascinating. It's not about disrupting lawyers or anything. It's about simply figure out what people are looking to achieve when contracting and then rethinking how that might be done, you know, with a technological quantum leap from what was used to be done before. Yeah. So, so one thing that naturally springs to mind, because I'm a bit of a data nerd, is you talked about you have data. Is this you've gone through all legal agreements that you can find registered in places and sort of seen what's statistically average? How, how have you got that data? Well, so one of the wonderful things about the Seed Legals platform is because we ask people to essentially define the key deal terms, the platform knows the underlying terms. Mm -hmm. So if you think about a legal document like a Shell's agreement, it's got hundreds of things that people want to agree, how many board seats there are, how many seats this director will have, this shareholder will have, what are the warranty provisions, all sorts of complicated things that few people truly understand, but they're buried in lots and lots of legalese, you know, uh -huh. 40,000 words or whatever is in the document expressing some deal points. And as a result, each Funding round is an island. It doesn't know about any others. But on seed legals, because people enter the underlying deal terms, there will be three directors maximum and the founders will have two of those rights and the investor will have one. Over thousands of rounds done on seed legals, we can now use those deal terms to see what's standard what's uh, typical for different round sizes. And actually, we're about to launch the thermometer, um, <laughs> which will say that, uh, you know, for, uh, for this size round, this is the, the distribution of answers that people select. So what's quite interesting is because for founders, the problem you have is we thought when we started Seed Legals, the problem that people were looking for is legals. But, but of course, legals are the answer to some other problem. I want to do a deal with this person to get some money from them to grow my business. What's the least amount of friction to be able to do that? And of course, you know, legals are the artifact that gets created from it. But it's not the goal. It's the goal is getting it's the means to the end, not the end in itself. Exactly. So what you want is you want both parties to see actually what a good deal would be to avoid the endless backwards and forwards in where statistically from the data they would have ended up in exactly the same place. Yeah. And if you can show both parties that, there, there are multiple advantages. Firstly, the founder, let's say an investor asks you for a particular deal term, the founder has no idea 
in the absence of, of knowledge and data, what's standard, they might be thinking, am I the only idiot agreeing to this deal term? Or am I the only idiot pushing back on it? It's, uh, and the investor would think I'm, I'm a lunatic. So nobody knows this. And it turns out that the biggest problem people have is not so much the creation of the legals, but it's the knowledge of what the deal terms ought to be. And by showing that to both parties, it's quite interesting. It's a social engineering exercise. Deals close way faster because everyone can see, you know, what, what's the norm. Yeah. Presumably when you start that, there is an asymmetry, though, in that most investors or a lot of investors are doing a lot of deals and they will see, go through this legal process a lot of times. Founders, particularly if they're, you know, it's the first round, at most they'll maybe do this two, three, maybe five times in, in their whole careers. So they're inevitably going to have less knowledge. Do you see yourself as kind of on the founder side? Yeah, so that, that's a, that is a great question. So when we started, actually part of our mission was to avoid the informational you know, knowledge asymmetry. And our assumption was investors had a lot more experience than, than founders. Actually, it's not necessarily the case because investors fall into broadly two groups, angel investors and funds. And funds are vastly experienced. They've been doing it for years. They've got in-house counsel. And for decades, they ruled the roost. They came up with hugely uh, non-founder friendly investor-friendly deal terms that had the founders on the hook for unlimited warranties. They could lose their house if they screwed up and uh, preference shares with anti-dilution and so on. But that world has changed. And in fact, part of our mission was to democratize things mm -hmm. and level that playing field. But it turns out not to be quite as simple as that because in the UK, there's a fantastic, thanks to the SEIS and EIS tax scheme, angel investors people investing personally can write off 50% of their uh, investment uh, as a tax deduction. So there are huge numbers of angel investors and those angel investors actually may have done fewer funding rounds than the founders. They may be less knowledgeable. So in fact, the, the knowledge asymmetry is sometimes the other way, but there the goal is to show both parties what is a reasonable deal so that neither party takes advantage of the other. And it turns out actually, you know, our assumption when we started Seed Legals is that we knew founders would love it. We were worried that investors would go, no, actually, we don't want people, founders, to have the additional information. We would like it the way it is. But it turns out to be the opposite. And it's the opposite for two reasons. One of them is angel investors. They didn't know themselves. And so they go, oh, these are standard terms. This makes sense. Uh, you know, it's now seed legal standard. And for VCs, the problem they have is... Firstly, VCs now increasingly want to position themselves as being founder friendly. There's a lot more competition. But second, the problem they have is that founders, if founders didn't know what was right or wrong, founders would go off on crazy sidetracks and refuse to come up with deal terms that were actually quite standard. Mm -hmm. So for the VC, actually having a platform which shows both parties what is market standard is an advantage to them because rounds will close faster for them as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and certainly it seems to me the whole negotiation process for, I mean, I speak to a lot of professional investors. That's kind of what I, I do most of the time. And a lot of them, in one sense, they're focused on cost. 
they see legals as a straightforward thing in theory, and they want to get the cost down. And some of them talk about they do have standard term sheets. Some of them talk about using the same lawyers every time to try and make sure they get that sort of thing. So anything that presumably that can remove negotiation must be good for them. Well, I, I think somebody well-known said there's the art of the deal. And so... <laughs> So really, the question is, you know, as I was saying all of this, you might be thinking, well, you know, am I getting a worse deal than I could have by by, by everyone seeing what is standard? Mm-hmm. And I think there are a certain class of things where uh, the, the information asymmetry is good in, uh, you know, if I'm selling iron ore and I've got, uh, you know, the other party doesn't know where other alternative suppliers are or something like that, and I can get a better price. But that's not to do with the legals. The mm-hmm. idea here is, you, the, the the contracting part should be standard. Separately, you can get a great deal in terms of your, your valuation or you can have a great pitch deck why shows your valuation is 10 million rather than 1 million. But, but the friction on the legals should be removed so you can get on with the rest of your business. Yeah, yeah. And the other challenge that I, I've heard a few investors talk about is there's this t- tipping point where up until the point is deal, ins- deal is signed, both sides are kind of adversarial in some point in the sense that whatever one side loses, the other side gains or, or, or vice versa. Whereas once the deal is signed, they're actually both on the same side. And, and then consequently, that negotiation could create a problem later on. And, and that is actually fascinating. So when, when we started see legals, the assumption is it's legals, but actually a lot of it is social engineering. Mm-hmm. And um, what, I, what I'm interested in is that, uh, I mean, apart from having a, hopefully a product that, that uh, is useful and that people love, sort of philosophically, the, the pieces behind it, which is if the goal is to get two consenting parties to agree things swiftly, efficiently, in a way that protects both parties, what is the best way to do it? And what's quite interesting is when you give somebody a Word document, your natural inclination is to turn on red line track changes and make changes mm-hmm. to it. And the cost of changing one word is the same as any other word. So all sorts of random shit gets changed. You know, mm-hmm. best endeavors gets changed to all reasonable endeavors. Nobody knows legally the difference between the two, but people spend ages futzing around on completely meaningless things like that. But if you change the model and instead you give people a set of deal terms, would you like a board seat? What's the valuation? You know, how many directors, whatever it might be, actually by reframing the debate, people will ch- will discuss it. Hey, would you like a board seat? Yes, no, great, let me tick that box. And then people, you get the output of the legals and people aren't inclined to go and change that. So I think really one of the interesting learnings I've had is that when there's a problem to solve, sometimes just reframing the entire space gets to a better solution. In this case, is to reduce things to deal terms. But actually, what's quite interesting just on our journey and, and, and mm-hmm. for the listener, you know, I'm tremendously proud that at Seed Legals, instead of spending three days at hundreds of pounds an hour for a lawyer to draft documents, the computer builds it in literally one second. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? Well, we ask the founders or the investors, you know, to go through a whole set of questions about the deal terms they want. And I'm very proud of that. But in a sense, I'm also disappointed. It's a complete failure. Why do we have to ask people all these questions? What we really want to do is maybe say, 
tell me a bit about your company. Actually, I've looked at your website. We know all about your company. Tell me about your investors. Actually, just send me to the website of the investor and our platform will work out the deals they've done and their standard terms. And by the way, how much you're looking to raise? Great. From that information, we now know where your deal is likely to close. So I would love that to be the next evolution. And our small step is Termometer, where for different deal sizes, we can now start recommending the uh, best answers. But but we're not going to be quite there yet. It's not like Tesla with autopilot because <laughs> things can go wrong. Well, they're not right quite now. there either, as the accident <laughs> Exactly. So we're starting with Thermometer, which is essentially an article uh, that says, great, for these uh, different round sizes, these are the choices that you might want to make. So we'll sort of inform you rather than pushing the buttons automatically. And then we might look at the correlation between that and what people really choose. And then may uh, start to default and, and let people, you know, override as, as needed. But that's the future. The idea is you choose. We hear like your ways guidance system to help you. Yes. And you, and you mentioned the word philosophy there. And, and before we, we started recording, we had a little chat and you mentioned that you have a philosophy where in terms of creating these things that I thought was quite interesting. So maybe you'd like to tell listeners what that is. So thank you. So Whenever someone says manifesto, you always wonder, have they gotten a bit ahead of themselves? Because mm -hmm. realistically, your, your customers are not looking for you to have a manifesto. They're just looking for a solution to their problem. But, but one of the things is, you know, when you're a startup and you start your business, your problems are all technical. You know, can we make this document work? Will the thing ever, you know, generate an output? But actually, as you reach scale and you find, uh, you know, more funding rounds in the UK are done on seed legals than any anywhere else. And there's a whole new generation of companies that have built their business on seed legals and no, no other way of doing it. You start finding yourself, whether you like it or not, now having, in a sense, a social responsibility. And we know that when we add a new feature or a new deal term, people will start using it. And if you make it the default, there'll be entire generations of companies with those terms as the default. So you now have to think quite carefully by setting some feature, how it will affect the ecosystem as a whole. And uh -huh. is it a good or bad thing? So occasionally investors might ask us, you know, are you founder friendly? Or are you investor friendly? And, and that's really the philosophical thing that we've been thinking about. Are our deal terms, you know, really in favor of founders? Or are they in favor of investors? I think founders think that we're founder friendly and investors think we're founder friendly. But actually taking a step back, if you think about it, there are quite a few parties. There are the founders, of course, personally, how will they benefit? Mm -hmm. There are the investors. There's the company, which is the sum of all parties of shareholders. And there, there are employees as well. So whose interests do you represent? And in a sense, I mean, the, the, the founders or the company is our customer. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, we represent the company. But actually, our mission and our manifesto is, you know, in the spirit of do no evil, it's to create an infrastructure that protects all parties. So our platform, without fear or favor, reflects and builds deal documents that reflect the deal terms agreed by the parties. But really where it becomes now the uh, interesting you know, piece, which is 
We know, you know, most people don't know the intricacies of legals and the documents are really long. And of course, people should and hopefully do read all the legals, but some of it is quite obtuse. Mm -hmm. So one of the goals is when things go wrong, we should be there to protect them and our legals should be there to protect them. And if I think about it, you know, you know, BMW, the car manufacturer, the engineers are building a car that if you drive and you fall asleep at the wheel and you're drunk and it's raining and you hit a tree, there should be a safety cell to protect mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Likewise, a set of legal documents, I think, uh, you know, does three things. One, it reflects the, the agreement, of course, between the parties as of here and now as to reflecting what they want to do. Number two, it's the, the, the sort of the rule book or the playbook to look up when things come up later. So in theory, you know all of this, but as a practical matter, you know, your TV stops picking up a channel. Well, you, you pick up the manual, which you never read beforehand, or you should have, and you now look and see what you do. So there are many things that come up in the life of the company that you need a rule book to see. My One of my uh, investors wants to sell their shares. What do I need to do? It's not good or bad. I just need to know, I need to offer preemption and these people have a preemption right. So you're gonna to turn to the article. So thing number two is a great sort of deal docs or contract in general is when you need to look at the playbook or the instruction manual, you can look at it and it'll explain clearly what to do in that use case. And the third one, what happens when things go wrong? And here it's quite interesting because founders perceive that they need to protect themselves against their investors. And the investors are there to screw them. And uh, it's, it's all about the legals to protect themselves. And, and the investors might be thinking the, you know, the reverse. But actually it turns out by far the biggest problem that founders have is not investors, it's their co-founders. About 10% of the time we see founders split up. Mm -hmm. And sometimes- Only 10%. Yeah, well, you know, those are the ones that we see. I mean, in early stages, it might be more. I guess we'd probably see the ones that are, you know, less amicable. But but there, if it's amicable, essentially, you now turn to the company's articles or shells agreement and open the, the, the manual, so to speak, and read what happens if a founder departs. But if it turns out to be acrimonious, then you might need to force the other departing co-founder to transfer their unvested shares back to the company. So the, the, uh, the third piece is what happens when things go wrong. And there, the idea is, can we, thanks to our legal team and spending unbounded capex on things and the knowledge of having seen many things go right or wrong <laughs> with thousands of companies, get ahead to predict the things that might happen to your company and put things in that you didn't even think about. So, you know, when people come occasionally and go, you know, your articles are really long. It's like 50 pages or something. Can we just have something shorter, please? We just want something really short. The idea is to explain, it's not lots of things to make life difficult for you. The instruction manual is there to outline what happens in a whole range of cases. If you remove the instructions, you're not making things easier. You're just leaving them undefined when things go wrong. Tack out that whole section on preemption and when your co-founder leaves or an investor wants to sell, nobody knows what to do. It's a bad thing. 
And, and that, that does raise an issue because, as, as we spoke about earlier, founders come in, in a sense, not knowing what they do or they don't need. And you're looking forward to the future. And in a sense, you have that experience. But they're coming in. You're saying the founder can pick terms in some cases or whatever. How much education do you have to do of the founder? Because presumably you, you could present it with articles, but you need to actually talk them through that a little bit as well. Right. So I think that's kind of one of the other interesting things that we found. So we thought that when we started Seed Legals, people were looking for legals. But actually what they're looking for is knowledge on what to do. Because, you know, if, if you, uh, you're the doctor, you've got your new startup, you're doing some dialysis machine, you know all about dialysis and, and, and your, your target market and so on. But there's this big black hole of what to do about fundraising. You've heard it's scary, things can go wrong, whatever it might be, uh, but you have no idea what to do. And the answer to what to do is not a big pile of legal documents. It's a workflow and sort of step-by-step -step guide saying, okay, great. The first thing is you need a pitch deck and you need to agree a valuation. And then you need to get that to your investors and you want to offer them SEIS because you'll be much more investable. So you want to get advanced assurance. And then by the way, these are the common valuations that might be useful for your stage of the company. And you've seen there's nothing legal document in it so far, mm -hmm. but a lot of what people want, they the perception is they need legals, but actually they're looking for knowledge, they're looking for workflow. Uh, these are the steps to do. And the demystification of a process. And that's, I think, one of the things that people love most about Seed Legals, which is, oh, I have no idea what to do. I saw the videos, I saw the pitch deck clinic, I saw the article on how to value my company. I got stuck and it took me through the eight things I need to do. Oh, and by the way, it generated all the legals. Great. So, and and I think you know when when you think about, for example, in a sense, a law firm as a competitor, the the lawyer will will create the deal docs. What I'm looking to do is to create the entire infrastructure from what is a startup, how do I fundraise, what should my valuation be, and the legals is just a you know, yes, stuff happens, documents get created, but that's because you needed it, <laughs> uh, not necessarily because you wanted it. Yeah. So it sounds more like, in some ways, that you're actually heading in the corporate finance direction or, or doing corporate finance as well as legals, because the, definitely what I just spoke about is something, is, is corporate finance, basically. Well, I think, uh, you know, I'd probably put corporate finances maybe sort of paid advisor slash later stage. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have thought of it as that. But I think one of the other interesting things is, that you, you know, when you have corporate finance and so on, you've got generally people who charge on a time and material basis. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and our business model, thanks to having a tech platform, lets us do the opposite. So we can monetize based on the platform efficiencies, the platform will do in one second what a human would take three days to do. And that's the monetization piece. And then we can afford to give lots of things away for free because of that. And our mantra is to ruthlessly use technology to put ourselves out of business. <laughs> so in the software eats the world way of working, the idea is we'd love to be awesome to customers. But the third time somebody asks us something, can we write an article? Can our chatbots suggest the article? 
if people keep wanting the article and, and still need to create something from that, can we build that into the platform? So the idea is we'll put unbounded effort to solve a problem, but putting our software developer hat on, we hate doing things manually. So can we take each example of doing something manually, gamify it to then build software to do it better? And what I like is that our platform essentially knows more than anyone else in the team now. So we've encoded specific deal terms for like a hundred different funds and investors and so on. So if a particular investor comes on the platform, they have standard deal terms sometimes. One click and it builds it in. No one would know exactly what those are. Uh -huh. I mean, we can look at the code to figure it out, but it automates a range of things. So. This gives you, I, I think, ultimately a software platform that just becomes smarter with time and a way of thinking that is actually quite fun for our team as well. So, you know, for a lawyer, they would be doing the same thing repetitively. And of course, it could involve great intelligence. I'm not to say anything bad about it. But if you were to change your frame of reference to go, Every time we do something manually, the goal is not to do that manually again, as soon as we identify that this is something we're doing multiple times. And then it becomes a fun way, and, and that becomes a, a way of building something so that you're building the platform rather than doing it manually. And that is, in a sense, the opposite of the corporate finance piece, which, again, might be doing the same thing manually. Here, how can the platform start mm -hmm. taking on that role? saying you're not corporate finance and corporate finance is kind of for, for bigger companies but at the same time smaller companies need advice that looks like corporate finance but they can't afford it got, got it so which which are the uh the things my company perhaps should and shouldn't do and i think that's definitely an area that we're increasingly getting into i think what's interesting is uh, in later stage companies things will have diverged from the norm a lot mm -hmm. more. Uh, companies will have very different market segments, different sizes. If you've made it to Series B, the, the founding team pretty much know what they're talking about. You don't need to teach them very much, or rather maybe they, the things they need to learn are the later stage set of things about an IPO or a Series C or something like mm -hmm. that. But at the beginning of a, of a company's uh, life, things are actually remarkably self-similar. You know, one company's a bread maker and the other one's doing dialysis and the other one's doing drones. But realistically, most UK early stage startups will do 150,000 pound SEIS rounds and then maybe raise 500,000 pounds or thereabouts seed round and then do a couple million pound series A round. And the problems to be solved are remarkably self-similar in the team growth, in the hiring, I mean, you know, assuming it's a, a particular segment company and particularly in, in fundraising. So there you can provide the information that will help those founders complete those steps. And what I found actually is early stage founders will voraciously consume that knowledge to educate themselves rapidly mm -hmm. so they can grow their business faster. Once you get to Series A, it's very hard to teach people what to do next because firstly, you may not know yourself. And secondly, <laughs> they've already made it that far. They're old and wise and don't need your help. Yeah, and, and presumably in terms of you thinking about your business, you, as you seem to allude to, 
your benefit is standardization. So where, where everything's standard, that works really well for you. Where people start building up these customizations as they grow, that makes your structure a little bit harder. And, and does that mean perhaps a more standard lawyerly approach might be more appropriate? Do you see people as growing out of your business? I think when we started, one of the key challenges we had was, is standardization good or bad? Mm -hmm. And uh, when we started, we kept having people go, well, you know, our deal needs to be custom and so on. And it, it really bugged me because it was, if, if things were not standard, and by the way, when I should say standard, your deal terms can be completely different to someone else's deal terms, but the structure, the class of things we negotiate is a fairly standard set of things we discuss. The, you know, your car can be green or red or blue. It's always going to have four wheels, but, but, but you know, it can have any number of doors. You know, so minis, they come in a, a billion different combinations, but they can still, in a sense, it's somewhat standardized. So the question is, is uh, number one, is standardization good? And number two, actually, will they stage things we standardize? And the way I've thought about it is, Sometimes, very rarely, you'll have founders going, well, now our deal terms are completely, we want something really bespoke. And it turns out that's a really, really bad thing to do. And so imagine when you uh, go on your next holiday and you arrive at the airport and you hop into your rental car. If the manufacturer of that car put the wheels, the pedals, the indicators, the headlights, the sat-nav, whatever, in exactly the same place as all the other cars you've driven, you could just jump in and drive away. It's amazing. If, however, they decided to move everything around and have their own custom versions of everything, it's a disaster. And for an investor, your funding round is exactly like them jumping in that rental car. They've done these things before. What they want is they want the deal terms to be exactly the same class of things as before. They want to negotiate on your valuation, getting board seats, whatever it is. They don't want to have a different language. They don't want to have weird stuff that they've never seen before. That just adds friction. So it is true that later stage, there are more customizations that have been mm -hmm. added over the years. But here's what's fascinating. When we start to see legals, people told us, well, it's going to work in the early stage rounds. In later stage rounds, companies have already started off with a lawyer and it's very hard to get them on seed legals. And it really irked me. And then I thought about it going, I'm just going to play the long game. I've read about Bezos and, mm -hmm. uh, and he says, I'm going to play the seven-year game. So if I think about it over seven years, most companies at seven years, if they start, I mean, if companies start on seed legals, I will just have more companies on seed legals than anywhere else. And so here's what I love, which is it's, it was a real problem when we started, but now the tables have turned. Now it's, in fact, any lawyer would go, actually, the chance is greatest that a company is on seed legals already, and it's much easier for them to stay on seed legals because it's one click to clone the teal terms of their last round or top up their last round or do a seed fast to add to the be ahead of the next round. So, and here's the interesting thing, which is if you think about things as a long play and you create something for early stage companies, those later stage companies will in due course be on your platform and you'll have transformed the argument. And in fact, what people didn't want was the effort of creating things bespoke. They just wanted a great solution to their problem. 
And here's the fun thing, which is, you know, our goal was to automate funding rounds. But then I realized our goal is to help you not do a funding round because funding rounds are expensive and mm-hmm. painful and you have to line up all the investors mm-hmm. to leave on and the bus together. from the business and all exactly. the other stuff. What if you can opportunistically meet someone in the pub and says, I'd like to invest 20K and you go, yes, let me send you <laughs> an instant investment or a seed fast. So if we can help companies, what we call uh, do agile fundraising is to raise before, during and after funding round. And now more investment is closed on seed legals out of a round than in a round. And it's really transformed the way companies can fundraise. And I think this is the fascinating thing that people often don't think about with technology is they think about technology solving today's problem. Mm -hmm. And they think that because we've done things in a particular way today, the technology just won't be as good at doing it. But actually the people creating the technology have often thought a couple of moves ahead in that game of chess. And they're already thinking, or at some point along the way, they have been bold enough to go, we'll get started even if we don't know what move two is in our game of chess, we'll still do move one and we'll figure it out afterwards. But you realize that in fact, the much bigger play comes later on. And so, in, in the case of seed legals, you know, when you've got tens of thousands of companies and tens of thousands of investors on the platform, can you use the network effect? Can you start using DNA to connect people? Can you use data? Can you make things so much less friction that there's not even an argument about going to a lawyer or not? It's not about whether one charge is more or less. In fact, it's about the next time you want to raise investment, there's a pool of investors that can be connected directly, but it's one click to do it. That when an investor wants to sell, there's the automation of that, that your team are on the platform. So what I'm always uh, amused by is when, you know, you have uh, a lawyer or an investor thinking we're replacing a pile of papers, but actually the vision is dramatically more than that. Mm Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's, it's funny. You're, while you're talking there, I was reminded of the comment I think Henry Ford had about uh, if you ask people what they want when we start making cars, it was a faster horse. And the reality is, yeah, as you develop your systems, you can actually change the way the market works for the better, which is which, which is great. You've spoken about how iteratively prove what you're doing and you add to things. How do you strike the balance between too much detail? and making things manageable because you can't cater for every future circumstance. You can't solve every future problem or have a legal framework for everything. And also if you keep sort of, every time you see something, you keep adding something, you just get longer and longer legal documents and everything gets, you know, which sort of puts people off. So how do you get that balance? That is a fascinating question and one that I don't really know the answer to. So, uh, but broadly it it goes like this, which is, and and by the way, this, this problem doesn't apply to seed legals only. It's any company that has a product where people might want uh, additional features to be added. And your initial thought is that, firstly, what's the minimum number of features you need before you can launch? And then when somebody asks you for an extra feature, should you add the feature or should you not add the feature? So in our particular case, if you imagine two extremes, imagine we made 
pretty much everything in a document in a shells agreement, free form editable. The good news is people could do absolutely everything. The bad news, it would be completely useless because most things people want to make changes to are actually bad law. Everyone would need to go to a lawyer and there would no point using our platform. On the other hand, if we made nothing customizable, it would be insanely easy to do around. Just say how much you want to raise and your valuation and we'll produce the documents. It, it takes three clicks. But it would work for nobody because everybody would want something to customize. And so the question is, what's the right solution? And here I turn to the record store problem. So back in the days when there were actually physical record stores, mm -hmm. the question is, how many record, how many albums did they need to stock? And it turns out that, let's say, something like 70% of all album sales are the top 100. So you think that they, if they just stock 100 albums, they will actually be able to cater for 70% of customers. But it turns out it's not the case, because although people buy substantially the top 100, all customers also want some country and Western or classic or gospel or whatever it might be. And if you don't have the long tail, almost all customers will leave unsatisfied. And so what is the total number of things that you need? And for a record store, it turned out, at least in the old days, these days, thanks to streaming, the numbers are different, but it's something like it needed four to 6,000 albums that it needed to stock, even though the vast majority of sales were the top 100. And maybe it's like Microsoft Word, you know, you keep seeing most people don't use most features, but perhaps the features are needed because some set of people wanted one of those features. And it's the same with seed legals, which is most people want a small key set of features, but some people need more customization. And how do we solve that? And we solve that in broadly two ways. We bundle some things together. We call these key terms and look over here. And then we've got a section called advanced terms if you want to fiddle more. But there always comes a time when somebody says, I'd like to do something that your platform doesn't do. And here it, it, it pained me initially because you want to be awesome and you want to say, yes, we can do it. But actually, it turns out that, and this has nothing to do with seed legals, it's any product, whether it's a social network or making different shoe sizes, at some point, it actually makes more sense to say no than to say yes. And to say, actually, our social engineering is to say, we've created something that's really efficient. Uh, if you want to use our platform, you need to change slightly what you're doing. If I ask you to change greatly what you're doing, no one will use us. If I make everything customizable, no one will be able to use us. So what is the right mix? So when you start off your business, you don't know what that is, but of course, thanks to the passage of time, you can now see, so if 95% of people can complete rounds on seed legals using the available features, which we occasionally increase, and 5% of the time we have to take it off platform because something, you know, we just couldn't cater for. Actually, that's about the right batting average. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. Because, yeah, as you say, it's something that a lot of founders wrestle with in their own context. So it's, it's interesting how you, how you think about that. Yeah, and by the way, I've, I've learned that saying no is often more important, important than saying yes. The trick is to try and show 
No, but with an outcome. So, for example, sometimes people go, oh, your platform's inflexible, you can't do X. And we explain the reason it can't do X is not a platform limitation. Actually, we thought about it and we intentionally don't let it do X because most times people want to do X. There are actually tax implications you haven't thought about. You know, why does your your employment agreement not let me give shares to employees? I want to give, well, it's because actually there'll be a tax liability for the employee and for the company and giving shares to an employee is a disaster with very rare limitations uh, or reasons why it wouldn't apply. And as a result, we don't let you give shares to an employee to prevent people inadvertently causing themselves huge problems. It's not like we, we missed a technical trick. No, we did it that way. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so you sort of alluded to the issues. What sort of mistakes do you see that startups or investors making in this area? So I think probably, well, uh, on the founder's side, one's to get started without founder agreements in place, because if a founder's split up and they don't have founder agreement with share vesting, it's pistols at dawn to try and figure it out. Whereas if you have founder agreements in place, even if it's not exactly amicable, at least there is the rule book to open to go, oh, you've left after one year, you need to give back two thirds of your shares and so on. I think the second thing is, Founders uh, sometimes uh, drink too much of the TechCrunch or Silicon Valley valuation Kool-Aid mm-hmm. and pick a valuation that's insane. And while it's super impressive that, you know, pre-product launch, when I've just got a PowerPoint, I've managed to entice some friends and family investors to invest on a four million pound valuation because I've seen actually crowdfunding rounds of those valuations. Mm -hmm. But then it gets to your next round and you now have a professional investor who goes, actually, you're pre-revenue, you're pre-users, you don't have traffic, you've just launched. Four million pound valuation is way off market. It's more like one million or maybe two million, and you now have a down round. So I think uh, picking a first round at too high a valuation is a real problem. Yeah, I saw something recently where someone said a lot of people think they're Mark Zuckerberg, but the basis assumption should be you're not Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> exactly, which then takes me on to the next thing, which is founders seeing that Zuck has got these special non, you know, super voting shares and so on. And founders think that they need to protect themselves against their investors with these super voting shares. So very occasionally it's infrequent, but founders will come and say, how do I set up 20 votes per share and so on? And actually 100% of the time we've seen uh, accountants set these things up for companies, they get undone at the next round. Because investors have lots of companies coming to them. And when yours is the one that they can see the founders have done all sorts of crazy things that they have no idea what's market standard to give the investors special non-voting shares or themselves special non-diluting shares or something. They just go, dude, you're dreaming. Move right on. Do you think the recent announcements, you know, of this London Stock Exchange recently changed its rules to allow dual classes of shares and personally, I'm, I'm a bit worried by that. Has that had an influence? Do you see more of this happening now? No, I don't think there's any uh, greater difference. I think that, uh, you know, if your business is successful, you begin to earn the right 
to, to do that. And as you entice next round investors and so on, you can start setting that up. But if you set that up on at incorporation or your first round, investors can look in many places. And it's a bit like that rental car mm-hmm. that you've decided to switch all the controls around and your investor hops in and go, dude, are you mad? Why did you move this stuff? No, this is just too hard. I'm just going to go and take the car next door for a ride because you've made it. I can't even figure out where to get started. So, you know, again, but the data is is clear. I would say literally 100% of the time, companies set up what we call alphabet shares, which are A, B, C, D, E shares. My accountant told me to do it they need to get undone and they need to get undone firstly because investors don't go for it and secondly the accountants who set it up had no idea what they were doing and set up five class of shares with identical rights which is useless or set things <laughs> up that each founder's got a different share class which just makes things very difficult even for share transfers and voting and other things later or, or they set up with wrong nominal values and so on so keep things standard initially Uh, The founders have 90% or 80% of the shares after the first round. They have complete control anyway. You don't need these things in early stage rounds. You do potentially need them in later stage rounds, and that's the chance to start introducing them. Put them in early, your first investors say, dude, undo that all, and then come back (laughs) when you've done it. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair enough. So what I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions. So because you're not a manager, we've taken a couple out, but uh, I I am sure you'll have a a strong insight into some of these. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. I think one of the things that I've learned is perhaps raising more money than is needed. So a couple of startups ago, I managed to raise a lot of money. And the problem with raising lots of money is you then begin to spend a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And then you start growing your team. And it's fantastic. You've got a big team and you're building a data warehouse and you're building a B2B and you're building a B2C and, and you're building a partner portal. But until you've got product market fit, actually, you're much better off staying leaner. And And I think it's thanks to probably the discipline of my business partner at Seed Legals, where although we're in the business of helping companies fundraise, uh, my business partner in particular is super fixated on us not needing to fundraise. His goal is that you should get funding to get to cash flow break even, and you should work out how to grow the business organically rather than being a, a pit that requires more and more investment. And I think that... When I now see companies that are looking to raise huge amounts to spend huge amounts before they've established product market fit and before they've worked out their revenue model, you're easily seduced by seeing those TechCrunch articles and so on. But the problem is you become, you get onto this treadmill where you raise lots of money. It's amazing. There's huge amounts in the bank. And then the amount goes down month on month. And then life becomes really, really stressful as all these people have followed you on your mission. And, and, and now if you don't raise more because there's no revenue in sight, then you're going to be out of business. Whereas if you could pick a relatively modest overall burn rate that sees your cash reserves last for two years or more after your first funding round, and then look to get to cash flow break even well before then, then you start having a business that's set up to become sustainable 
you may still choose to raise to accelerate things and launch in other countries, but you're not beholden to have to fundraise. And I think most people, uh, most founders these days are seduced by the lure of the funding round and also the fact that TechCrunch, UKTN and endless number of publications, the only thing they show are companies raising investments. So-and-so raised 10 million, so-and-so. You think success is raising money, but actually uh, raising money is the failure to not have to raise money. You know, you need to raise money initially because unless the founders can fund things from their own pockets, you need more investment. But thereafter, each round either really is there to take the business to the next level or is there because the business couldn't get to cash flow break even beforehand. And that's been an interesting thing that we all know that it often needs a sort of financial discipline sometimes of the co-founder to keep reminding you of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting challenge because I think sometimes you, once you get on that treadmill and in, investors particularly professional investors, I think, look for that treadmill to keep going faster and faster. And in one sense, it's great that the venture capital model or venture capital funder model is is now widely accepted in a way that even 10 years ago, I don't think it was. It's not for everybody. And, and there's really the interesting thing that people should understand, which is for a VC, it's like a poker game. The, their returns, mathematically modeled, fit a power uh, law curve, which means that two thirds of them will make no money or fail. As, you know, maybe 10 or 20% will make a two or three X return mm-hmm. on investment, and one out of 10 will make a 50X return on investment, and it's called returning the fund. So for a VC, they're looking for each investment they make to be like putting their money on 26 red or something Mm -hmm. like that. It's going to be the one with a 30x or 100x return. But if you get back to your spouse at home and go, hey, honey, I'm embarking on a new venture, that 95% chance it will fail (laughs) and 5% will be billionaires, your spouse is likely to say, get a day job because we cannot live like this where 95% of the chance we're going to be living on the street. They're going to be saying, pick something that gives you a 50% chance or an 80% chance of having a 3x return on your investment uh, over some number of years. And that's fundamentally the difference in outcomes between founders and VCs. And this is why for uh, founders, angel investment in the UK is your friend because angel investors are not looking necessarily, I mean, they might flirting on the side for that, you know, 50x. But for the most part, given that your bank is giving you 0% interest, Mm -hmm. it would be awesome if you could invest and with a 50% chance of success, get a 3x or 5x return on investment in a few years and get your SEI's tax, tax break and pay no capital gains tax on that. So angel investors, because of the smaller number of investments they make and the shorter window that they would like to get a return on investment, for a VC, they can wait 10 years for an IPO. For an angel, they probably want something in a few years' time. So the goals and the definition of success for an angel investor is much more likely to align with yours as a founder, which is 
in five years, sell the business for you know, 10 million would be rather nice or north of 10 million. Whereas for a VC, it's okay, one in 10, I need you to be a unicorn. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yes. Yeah. Yes, it's a different dynamic. So the EIS industry and the SEIS industry that we work in is fantastic in many ways, but it's not perfect. How would you like to change it? I'm not sure that I agree it's not perfect. Oh. Uh, I, I, I think what most people don't think about, which, which I love to gamify it, and I think that HMRC, if you think about, you don't think of HMRC doing uh, MVP and product development, but, but when I see the changes in the ongoing evolution to SEIS and EIS, it's, I'm almost seeing in my mind product developers, uh, product managers at HMRC evolving this product. So once upon a time, they, HMRC or the government brought out VCT, and VCT was an, an early version of tax deductions for funds and so on, but it was horribly misused. Funds created these energy exploration yeah. companies, which they then invested, got the tax deduction, flogged it off, made another one, and, and so on. So then EIS came out, and HMRC sort of learned from product one what not to do in product two. So for those who look at uh, EIS uh, rules, they're these weird rules attached, like you can't do electricity generation and you can't do farming and you can't do mining and mm -hmm. gas exploration. Like, specifically where, named. Yeah, exactly. And, and shipbuilding. So where did this random stuff come in? <laughs> and, and the random stuff, so far as I can see, came from the learnings of the previous products. This is how it was exploited. So they built the rules in on the next product. Yeah. An ongoing process of whack-a-mole, as I describe it, where they had a problem, they went whack, solved that one, something else cropped up. Well, you know, you, you might say it's whack-a-mole, but you might say it's product iteration. And then the problem with EIS is it was you know, dominated by large funds and, you know, they wanted more smaller investors. So they came up with SEIS and then they tweaked the rules on that to avoid some of the, you know, things that were unwanted on, on EIS. But then what's happened is investors said, how do I know you'll qualify for SEIS or EIS? So HMRC said, all right, all right, you can call us and get an advance assurance. We expect hardly anyone will need to do that. But investors then got into the habit of saying, can you get advance assurance? And now the vast majority of funding rounds now go with advance assurance. Mm -hmm. And on seed legals, something like one in five of all advance assurances in the UK is on seed legals. And it's now the difference between if you have your advance assurance to go to investors and they'll go, I'm in, or get your advance assurance and come back later. So advance assurances move from a you know, if you may be a mining company, but you're not sure, call us and we'll give you a ruling to every company gets an advance assurance. And so that was sort of an unexpected thing. But then HMRC said, we're going to make it a bit harder to get advance assurance because too many people are calling us. So you now need to show evidence of uh, investors committed or uh, at least intended investment amounts. And you have to satisfy risk to capital conditions. So, so the game evolves. And of course, our goal is to help customers, our customers, get their advance assurance uh, efficiently by showing them the things they need to do to satisfy the ongoing rules. 
Um, and, and by the way, I didn't quite answer whether it's perfect or not, but I think it's a great ecosystem. And, and the ecosystem that it's created is a set of quite complicated checks and balances that to the uh, uninitiated often looks quite random. Like, why can't my generator company qualify for EIS? Well, actually, it goes back years ago to, to this misuse, and that's why that's intentionally there, even though it seems weird. Or it gets linked to some EU state aid thing on farming, which is why farms can't qualify because it's another state aid or, you know, which might now get revisited. But, but there's often a method to the madness. Not always, but often. So what do you wish you knew when you started with seed legals that you know now? I think for a founder, there's a personal journey to go on. And initially, you think the problem you're solving is about building this widget that you had in mind. But actually, the problem you have is ultimately building a team, managing a team, dealing with weird, uncertain things that you couldn't predict that come up like COVID. Um, and when when your team look at you and go, oh, wise one, what do you do next? And you go, I have the slightest <laughs> idea, but you can't really say that. So I think probably... Uh, it's about the, and, and by the way, the personal journey continues. I don't claim in any way to have the answer. The, the task of managing a team of 10 is different to 50, is different to 100, is different to 500. So as Seed Legals now is 100 people, my role and the things that people expect me to do and the things I should be doing are quite different to when it was three people. So... I need to adapt. And I think that's whether it's, you know, anyone in the founding team of a company have to realize that if you want your company's effect to be profound in the world, and either you simply want a, a large company with lots of revenue, or you're on a mission to change something, which of course is that much more uh, desirable, then you will need a large team and your role will evolve. And if it can't evolve, either you're destined to repeat with lots of a succession of small companies and then move on to another, or you have to reinvent yourself. And I think that's one of the really interesting things because you know you give up your day job, you start a company, you get together with a couple of friends, and you cannot imagine that one day there'll be a hundred people or more in your team, your days on Zoom calls, nobody's in the office. Uh, somehow you have to onboard new people. You've solved the problem beautifully of not knowing people's names because everyone's name appears at the bottom <laughs> left corner of the rectangle with their yeah. face, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but how do you manage people? How do you create a coherent structure when there's no one you know, near each other? How do you make sure the left hand and the right hand know what they're doing? These are all the interesting challenges to have. So, But it's a case of the short answer is reinventing yourself. And you know, I, I don't claim to know the answer and I'm still on that journey. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're making a good fist of it so far. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's still the beginning of the journey. So. <laughs> so if people want to find out more about what you're doing, where should they go? 
yeah, head over to clegals.com, obviously, to see the business. Head over to, you know, Anthony Rose on uh, LinkedIn. And, and maybe on, on Twitter, you'll see some of my acerbic wit at 2 a.m. As I, as I hit Twitter before going to bed. So, yes. <laughs> Excellent. We'll post links to all those in the show notes. <laughs> so thank you very much for coming on today, Anthony. That has been fascinating. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful t- discussion and I hope of some value to the listener. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.